Good morning, Journey Church International. Yes, Coach Burke, see you out there. Good to see you. See Kellen over here. Got Sasha from Ukraine. Uh, just really glad to be here and um, be able to preach God's word with you all. My name is Marcellus Casey. I work with the Hope Center. Uh, we, live, we live right on the east side of Kansas City, right at 31st and Prospect. Um, one of the toughest places in Kansas City to live. Um, but God is truly doing a work. You saw a little bit on the video up there. Um, so first of all, I just want to say thank you to you all's generosity. So um, every week as people hand in connection cards, um, Journey Church International, through you all's generosity, has been giving to the Hope Center $10 per card. Um, so we're almost to about $2,500 that the Hope Center will receive. So you guys should hand clap for that. Um, and that's just one of the small ways that Journey Church International has, has partnered with the Hope Center. So we really appreciate you all for that. Um, on a personal level, so some of you all have heard me preach here before, and I've talked about how my wife and I, with our four kids, have moved from Brookside, um, Kansas City, which is near the plaza, and we moved to the east side, to the Hope Center neighborhood. So we live right near 31st and Prospect. And um, it's a, it, like I said, it's a lot tougher place in the city to live. Um, but there's also been specific generosity um, from folks in this church that has helped my family out personally. So um, I, I know you guys have probably heard of Elite Fence and Deck, but um, Kevin and Christina um, actually helped donate a fence to put around the back of my house. And um, that is a big deal for me. Thank you. That is a big deal for me personally. Um, right before this fence was installed in January, um, there was a man who was shot, and as he was shot, he ran through my backyard. Um, just two weeks ago, um, two people were murdered about 100 feet from my back door. So a fence around your backyard might not sound like that big of a deal, but for me, with, with four kids... Um, it has literally um, just helped our family in some huge ways. My kids love, like, we got them a trampoline um, around Christmas time. Now they feel comfortable just, like, running out there, jumping on their trampoline. And uh, so I really appreciate you all um, for how you guys bless my family personally. Um, so let's pray, and we're going uh, to dive into God's word in Matthew chapter 11, okay? Um, Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that your word is true. God, I thank you that your word is clear. God, I thank you that you call us to wrestle with your word, even parts of it that are hard to understand, even parts of it that make us uncomfortable. So God, I pray that even as we're praying for revival, God, I pray that you would bring a very holy discomfort into this room today, that you would disrupt our minds, that you would disrupt our hearts, that you would change where we are going so that we can glorify you and live for you for the rest of our lives until you call us to glory. Um, Lord Jesus, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. The realization that we're talking about today is how wisdom is found in repentance. The realization that we're talking about today is how wisdom is found in repentance. Now, uh, one of my favorite scholars, his name is N.T. Wright. Um, he's, he's, a, he's a bishop um, in the Anglican church. 
Um, he has an English accent. I feel like anybody with an English accent can say anything and you're going to believe him uh, just because it sounds smart. <laughs> um, but N.T. Wright is one of those guys, like, I can listen to him on a podcast. I can listen to his sermons all day because, you know, it sounds like somebody, like, out of Harry Potter or something. And uh, N.T. Wright, one of the things that he talks about when he describes repentance is that it was a word used in um, Roman power. So he talked about when one Caesar had fallen out of power, whether he died or somebody else took his place, when that Caesar, um, that emperor of Rome had fallen down and a new one had risen up, what they would do is they would send messengers throughout the whole Roman kingdom. And these messengers, if they saw you on the side of the road or they saw you somewhere, they would stop you And they would tell you the gospel. And they would say, hey, there's a new king in town. Your responsibility as you met this messenger on the road was to repent. And what that meant was you were supposed to stop what you were doing, recognize that there was a new king, there was somebody that was new in power, and that was the recognition of your life. You had turned your life over from one king to a new king. And N.T. Wright talks about how powerful this was that these messengers would go out and share the gospel that a new king was in town. So when Jesus comes and preaches the gospel and when his cousin John the Baptist comes and preaches the gospel, they are hoping that there is a reaction, that there is a change, that people hear this message and that people not only hear it in their minds, but are changed in their hearts and changed in their actions. When we talk about the wisdom of repentance, we're talking about people's actions and their lives being changed because they repented, because they've admitted the fact that, you know what, there is a king who is in charge and I have to submit to what he says. No matter who the king was in my life in the past, whether I was the king or somebody else was the king, no matter if I was defining my own ways or doing my own things, I now need to submit to this king who is now in power. I have to change. I have to turn around. I have to go another direction. The only problem is is that we live in a world that is backwards. Listen to what um, Jesus says in Matthew chapter, chapter 11, verses 16 through 19. He's speaking to these people and he says, but, what, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a song, and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds, Jesus says. The world that we live in is backwards. Like you can see in this text how Jesus paints this picture to these people that he's been preaching to over and over and over again. He says that, hey, when my cousin John the Baptist showed up, you said that he had a demon inside of him because he didn't eat and drink the way that you wanted him to. Jesus says, I show up and I eat and drink And you say that I'm a glutton and a drunkard. 
He says it's like little kids playing and saying, hey, we sang, another version of this says, hey, we sang a wedding song for you. Another, and in that same version, it says, we sang a funeral song for you, and, and you, you, you didn't cry. What it's saying is, is that the world has things backwards, where they, they want you to cry at a funeral or to, to dance um, at a wedding, or excuse me, backwards. They want you to cry at a wedding and dance at a funeral, when it's like, that's not the occasion. Because when God asks us to mourn certain things, he wants us to mourn the way he mourns. He wants us to celebrate the way he celebrates. Like you see it um, so clearly in in, um, Danielle's leadership in the way that she was up here just now. And you saw just in a few minutes the leadership of a person who in one moment was celebrating over 100 people coming to know Jesus. And in the same moment, embodied in her communication, you see a mourning for what is happening in Ukraine. We mourn the things that God mourns, and we celebrate the things God celebrates. We don't live according to the way that the world has asked us to live. Like when we look at the world, there's many things that the world will celebrate that we have no business celebrating. When you look at the world and you look at social media and you turn on the TV and you see things that the world celebrates and gets excited about, we have no business celebrating those things. And things that a loss that your neighbor takes or a loss that your coworker takes and they're mourning that loss and we don't mourn in the same way because our values are surrendered to a king who has defined things differently for us than the world defines for itself. So my question to you is, what do you mourn? What makes you sad? What do you grieve? Are you grieving things that align with the kingdom agenda of God? Or are you grieving and mourning things that don't matter for eternity? When you think about what you celebrate, what you get excited about, what makes your heart start pumping in the morning, the good news when you get that text message on your phone like, oh, that is good news. I'm so glad that somebody told me that. Are those things that God celebrates? Are those things that make God's heart throb? Or are they things that won't last eternally? In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says this. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12, 9 says this, let love be genuine. Another version says, your love must be sincere It says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Another version says, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Right before the the whole world shut down for the pandemic, I think it was Friday, March 13th. Is that right? Is that the day everything shut down in Kansas City? That day, I did a funeral for somebody that overdosed on drugs. 20 minutes later, 
after that funeral, I went and did a wedding for a couple who had both overcome addiction to drugs. So in a matter of about three or four hours, I was mourning the loss of a life of a person that God cherished. And in the same moment, I was celebrating lives that had repented and changed and come close to God. And that's the tension that as Christians, we're called to sit in. And that's the tension that if you're not a Christian, God is calling you towards. The embodiment of what God has called us to mourn and what he's called us to celebrate. The second thing that I'd like to talk about is how the warnings and the woes are clear. The warnings and the woes are clear. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 20 through 24, Jesus goes on to say the, or, or to talk about these things. It's talking about what Jesus is saying. It says, then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. These are Jesus' words in verse 21. He says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Verse 22. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, you will be exalted to heaven. Will you be exalted to heaven? It says you will be brought down to Hades, another word for hell. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now what we see here is Jesus preaching to this group of people. And not only preaching, but doing miraculous works, doing wondrous things for these people to realize that a new king was in power and that they needed to repent and turn to him. That they needed to entrust their lives to him. So you see God over and over through his son Jesus preaching to these people, giving them opportunities, giving them chances to repent. Okay? Now, I grew up in a house where you didn't always have a lot of chances to repent, okay? (laughs) Now, if you grew up in a black house, it sounds something like this. You got one more time, (laughs) okay? Now, sometimes I'll go to my friends' houses, okay, and their parents might say something like this. They might say, I'm going to count to five. (laughs) One You know, and you have this whole drawn out thing. My parents, it was like, it was different. It was like, you got one more time. Okay, now when my parents said this, because of past experiences with my parents, I knew that I did not have five more times. I didn't have four more times. I didn't have three more times. I didn't have two more times. I literally had one more time to repeat whatever behavior I had done before something bad was going to happen. Praise God that he is more patient than my parents were. (laughs) Where he gives us chance after chance to hear him. Chance after chance 
to respond, chance after chance to see what he's trying to do. When we look at Sodom, as it mentions in verses 23 and 24, when we look at this in the Old Testament, you see that these were a very, very wicked people. Abraham's nephew Lot had gone to live with these people. Um, in, in ancient Palestinian culture, it was very important that you showed hospitality to foreigners. If somebody showed up in your town square and they didn't have any place to live or they were visiting, you were obligated to show these people hospitality. So when it talks about this, it actually, in, in the book of Genesis, it, it talks about how the angel of the Lord showed up to give judgment to Sodom. And in this city, not only did they deny this Palestinian cultural norm of caring for and showing hospitality to foreigners, they completely broke this law and they wanted to do the exact opposite and abuse people who came to their town in some really obscene and gross ways. And God was ready to judge these people. But before the angel of the Lord had come there, Lot's uncle Abraham had prayed repeatedly, God, will you save people in this place? God, if, if there's 100 people, God, if there's 50 people that, that are righteous, God, will you save these people? There was a repeated action of, of desiring God to call people to repentance and call people away from the judgment that was coming. As we look in the book of Exodus and we see God's man, Moses, um, calling God's people out of Egyptian enslavement. God was about to pronounce judgment on the Egyptians, but what did God do? He gave plague after plague. He gave opportunity after opportunity for these people to repent to the new king that was in power, to the one who was doing miraculous works right in front of their eyes so that their hearts will be opened and submitted to who God is. So the first thing that I want you to see is that God is patient with his warnings. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says this. It says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is patient with his warnings. God is patient with your life, but he's giving you an opportunity even today to repent, to turn to him, to submit to him. The third thing is that God, God's warnings are clear. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we see Nathan the prophet responding to David's blatant sin. David had cheated on his wife um, with a woman named Bathsheba, and then he had Bathsheba's husband murdered and covered it all up. Nathan the prophet was very clever 
in how he approached David. He came to him and he illustrated this story about a shepherd who had this one little ewe lamb, this tiny little lamb that he loved. And the shepherd didn't treat this sheep like a piece of property. It says, the text says that he treated it like it was one of his own children. And he cared for this little lamb. And every day he would care for it. Until one day somebody else wanted that little lamb. And so they cheated and they stole this lamb and they ate it. And Nathan the prophet was like, David, what what should happen to that person that stole that lamb? And David pronounced judgment on that person. And then Nathan looks back at David and he says, David, you are that man. Nathan cleverly drew him into a story to be crystal clear with him. Hey, you have an issue. Man, repentance is about when we are able to see what we've done wrong. In Isaiah chapter 6, like Jesus, or in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus keeps using this word, woe, woe is you, woe to these people, woe to those people. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah has a vision of God, and he's so struck by this vision of God and the beauty and the power, he falls on his knees and he says to himself, woe is me. He says, for I am a man of unclean lips. I am a sinful person. Repentance is about when we realize that we are messed up. And God is clear with that. God shows us that. And we always want to be the kind of people that say, woe is me, where we realize versus when Jesus is coming and saying, woe to you. We want to receive that as quickly as possible. Woe is me. Look at me. What have I done? The opposite of of repentance is when we try to litigate, when we try to conversate, when we try to wiggle out of what we did, when we provide excuses for what we did. Oh, it wasn't really that bad, or I was tired that day, or, you know, it didn't hurt as many people, or, you know, my boss never found out about it, you know, my kids never found out about it, my wife never found out about it. But that is not repentance. Repentance is when we say, whoa, look what I did. I can't believe the person I'm looking at in the mirror. I have to change. And that's a moment that Nathan provided for David to say, look at what you've done. I don't care that you're the king. I don't care that you've done work for God. I don't care that you worship God. Today, you're wrong. And that's a word for pastors, for preachers, for non-Christians, for Christians. Today, if you're wrong, we need to repent. Revival will not come where there is not real repentance. The third thing I want you to see, and this this is where God really helps us out, is that God uses his word, he uses his people, And he uses his spirit to warn us. We need to say praise God for that. In Revelation chapter 2, and you should read all these these little excerpts to to the seven churches in Revelation. They're they're so beautiful because um, it's like I'm I'm an athlete, or I used to be. (laughs) And, you know... Coaches, they always have a way of, like, coming up to you. Hey, man, you know, you're doing a great job with this, this, and this, and this. But 
you need to work on this, this, and this. Um, me and Kellen, man, we had a, we had a coach. Uh, we both had this coach. He coached at Northwest Missouri State and then coached at, at Missouri Southern, uh, Coach Tatum. And um, one, one time, Coach Tatum was just not very clear with me. And uh, he told me, man, you're, just, you're doing great, Marcellus. He was from Texas. He had this accent like this. Marcellus, your routes, you're just running great routes, Marcellus. You're looking good. So I come out of this meeting like, man, it was after spring ball. I'm like, man, I just did a great job. I'm about to get this starting position. And then I meet with our head coach, and he's like, uh, Marcellus, uh, you know, just you weren't, you weren't looking that good. You know, we're going to start John over you. And I'm like, what? I'm like, coach just told me I was doing great. And now my head coach is like, no. Luckily, God is, is so much more clear with us. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 through 7, this is what, what Jesus says to the church. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you can, cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is a church. These are people that believe. These are people that are already doing the works of God. And Jesus says to them, hey, I see that you're doing great things. I see you enduring. I see that you're, you're fighting against false teaching. He says, but look, you've lost your first love. He says, turn back to me so that your church can continue to be effective. This church is built by the people that are in these pews. It's not your worship leaders. It's not the personality of your pastor. It's not the money. It's not the building. It's you before God. And if God is not your first love, whether this is your first time ever coming to a church or you've been here since day one of Journey Church International, your heart before God, God needs to be your first love your first passion, your first desire. The warnings and the woes are clear, and praise God that he gives us his word, his people, and his spirit to warn us. The last thing that I want to talk to you all about is how wisdom is found in repeated repentance. It has to happen over and over again. It's not a one-time thing where, where we just change our life and, and we just move on. My dad reminded me this of, of this when I was, I think I was a junior in, in uh, high school. And my dad, kind of like Nathan the prophet, was very clever in, in how he would convict me of things that I was doing wrong. And I'll never forget the time. So my dad and I, we would drive around all the time and listen to music together. And my dad would, like, just speak into my life about what it meant to be a man. I went to Lee Summit High School, so a lot of times we'd be just driving around Lee Summit. We'd listen to James Brown, listen to music. Like, it was just a great time with my dad. We would go, my dad would work me out. He, he would make me run sprints and run routes and 
throw the ball to me, just like great father-son moments. Like you could put this on YouTube or on TV. Like this is great. It's perfect. Um, so one time my dad, he, he comes home from work. Um, he was working for Fellowship of Christian Athletes at the time. And he comes home. He's like, hey, son, let's take a drive. I fall right into his trap. This is great. All my memories of drives with dad are great. So we, we, we pull out our driveway, and then we go right around the block right to a park and stop. You know, it's like two seconds from our house. Like, I thought we were going on a drive. And my dad lights into me. And my dad's a pastor, okay. My dad has been in ministry his whole life. And there were words that my dad used <laughs> that I had never heard him use before. Words that I'd never heard him say in a pulpit or in a prayer. And my dad was reminding me of where my grades were at the time, where my leadership was at the time. And I was that kid. I mean, I was head of the youth group, leading FCA, you know, Mr. Christian kid, athlete, doing all the right things in some areas of my life. But my dad was reminding me, and I needed him to do that that day, that it's through repeated repentance and consistency in every area of your life that you grow with Christ. And true story, as, as my dad and I were in the car and he was using those words, I was like, I, I used a couple of the words. <laughs> and then he used more of those words to tell me that I wasn't allowed to use those kind of words. In his car. I was, I was like, I thought that's what we were doing. <laughs> no, no, that's not, that's not what we're doing. <laughs> in Matthew chapter 11, back up in verse 19, it says this. It says, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, Paul, the apostle, talks about his former life. He says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, for his sake, I suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Our repentance has to be rooted in faith. Our repentance has to be rooted in how we value the work that Jesus has done for us and the work that he does through us. It is not our power that leads us to repentance. It's not our power that gives us consistency after we repent. It is the power of Christ inside of us. Paul himself was one of the most religious people to ever walk the earth, one of the most holy Jewish people to ever live. But he says the work that Jesus did on his behalf is better than anything that he could ever do on his own behalf. Our repentance also needs to be rooted in intimacy. Paul's reasoning for this in verses 10 through 11, he says that I may know him, in the power of his resurrections, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any, mean, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection 
from the dead. He wants to be close to Jesus. He wants to be close to the way of Jesus. He wants to suffer like Jesus. His repentance is rooted in intimacy with God. I want to know him. I want to experience what his life is like. Revival doesn't come without God's saints suffering. The last thing on here is is that repeated repentance is rooted in vision and in obedience. Paul continues to say that although he's come to know Jesus, although he's striving to know him more, he says this. He says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. So what he's saying is, is like, I have not already obtained what God has for me. Like some of you, this is your first time that you've ever come to church. This is the first time that you've ever heard the fact that Jesus Christ died for your sins so that you can know a holy and a perfect God. So that your sins, all the mistakes that you've made, all the people that you've hurt are not counted against you, but you're forgiven. This might be the first time you've ever come to a church and ever heard that good news. And for some of you, you've heard that good news ever since you were a kid. And you've been in church. You memorized all the verses. You went to church camp every summer. Your parents were pastors. You were a part of planting this church. You've been here. You've you've done the same things over and over. But what Paul is saying is like, hey, we have more to strive for. There's more in the future that God has for us, big things that he wants to do with your life, big things that he wants to heal you from, freedom that you have not experienced yet, things that you need to repent of in your life so that you can be pure and holy. This message is not just for those who are coming to this church for the first time or coming to a church for the first time. This message is also for me. This message is For all of us, no matter how long you have come to this church, there is a new king who is in power. I'm a lowly messenger here to tell you there is a new king in power. And the action and our response is to fall on our knees and say, King, you are my king. What must I do to be saved? Now, that might sound funny. For those of you that consider yourself saved already. And although you might have your eternity in heaven assured, there are things on earth that you can lose very quickly. Your family can pay big costs from sin that nobody knows about in your life. There's people in this city that need to know the love of God that don't know the love of God because we're too busy comforting and coddling our sin. There's things that we need to strive for that God can do with our lives that he can't do until we repent 
until we turn, until we change by the power of Jesus. And the good news is that Jesus doesn't leave us to do this work on our own. He provides the power to change. He provides his presence with us to change. He gives us everything we need to finish the race that he has called us to run. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you that you call us and give us the opportunity over and over and over to change. And this is one of those moments, God, where you have so gracefully given us these moments to hear your word, to reflect upon where we need to change, and to go a different direction. So, Spirit of God, I pray that you would do that work in our hearts and in our minds, whether it's people coming to know Jesus for the very first time and submitting to this king who deserves all glory and worship, or whether it's us who have literally been in church for decades but have things in our hearts and our minds that we need to get right before you, that we need to walk away from, that we need to go a different direction in order for you to be glorified. God, we thank you for your patience. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your presence. And I pray that you would heal hearts and minds and change folks' lives today. In your name we pray, amen. 